As long as you are building up your play money and it's your hobby money, then have fun. Hobby, right? Understand spend. If you don't have a, a date in mind to launch your business, get a job in the space, start conducting customer interviews, really understand what the problem is. Most people who come to the table with cash and they're ready to build something, they don't actually have any, any idea of the customer, of the problem, of what they're solving. The biggest issue is they think that having money will actually will actually make it all happen. It's, it, it's still, these things take time. There's no amount of capital that's going to buy you customer research for yourself or understanding your own, your own market or what your flywheel is going to look like. So you're listening to Ecomonics, a Debutify podcast, your resource for one of a kind insights into the world of e-commerce and business in the modern age. This is Joseph. I'll be presenting a wealth of industry knowledge from interviews with successful business people and our own state-of-the-art research. Your time is valuable, so let's go. Shama Maher, CEO of Scaling Retail, is a welcome check-in and insight into retail from the background of fashion. I continue to be surprised and delighted at what unique questions I get to ask. In this case, some of it is about fashion, but largely about what role retail plays in what we do. It's no secret that success in dropshipping acts as a stepping stone to greater things, agencies, content empires, a company like ours. But don't count out brick and mortar. The value of the in-person experience is something I know quite well, having been in it for many years. And I'm glad to have an hour-ish today with someone who can impart a lot of that value onto you. Shama Maher, it is good to have you here in Ecomonics. How are you doing today? How are you feeling? I'm feeling pretty awesome. How are you doing? What's going on? Uh, I'm doing, I'm doing well. Uh, I, it's, I know it's a, it's a pleasantry, but man, am I tempted to actually like, you know, get into how, how I'm actually doing last week. We even had my, my girlfriend and I, we've been having a weird time sleeping. We'll both like wake up, like we'll make eye contact like 3am in the morning and be like, it's not time to get up yet. And then we just fall asleep. Uh, or like I, I, I'm up against the wall, so I'll, I'll roll over and I'll elbow the wall and she'd be like, do you elbow the wall? Like, yeah, I elbowed the wall. I'm like, sorry. So <laughs> I'm still getting my eight hours, but it's been, it's been a weird, like last couple of days trying to sleep like for, for nine solid hours. So that's how I'm doing. And listeners, she is cracking up over this. You just can't see it. Is, is Mercury in retrograde? <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Well, I would say for your sleeping habits, might I highly suggest um, getting a bit of a, a sleep tracker. So whether it's the the aura ring or, you know, even if it's having, um, there are now so many different ways of being able to track your sleep. So while darling, you might think that you are getting eight hours of sleep, you might only be getting five and uh, you might just be in bed for eight hours. So I'd say biohack that shit, track it. And, uh, and and make it work. All right, I'll add it to my checklist. So I got blanket, pillow, mattress, sleep tracker. All right, that might be the one then. So I know that we, we don't have you uh, for forever. We've only got you for X amount of time. So let's make it count. First question, a traditional economics question slash tradition for like most podcasts, but you know, whatever. Um, tell us who you are and what do you do? It's a great question. Um, gosh, yeah. I What do I do? I feel like I'm a multi-hyphenate, which is pretty pretty common in 2021 to be a, a multi-hyphenate, though I've been one um, uh, for a very long time. So so more so maybe than, than others in my space. Um, my background is in corporate fashion. I was a buyer and behind the scenes at Barney's. 
RIP, uh, Gucci, Macy's. I launched my consulting practice and my agency just about 10 years ago, scaling retail, and which has been uh, pretty exciting. And then last year in April, I co-founded a business called Rental Co. with a co-founder. Um, we started selling PPE back in April of 2020. We grossed over $2 million in about six months and realized that now we need to pivot and have a new business. So multi-hyphenate, but all in the consumer spaces. Mm-hmm. Well, I think what we find these days is that um, in order to take initiative, I don't think I've talked to anybody who really like um, either does one thing or has only ever done one thing. Uh, one of the one of the sides of that too is that you know we live in a time where you know sorry, but if you look back to different parts of history, it took longer to even really be able to to take off in one aspect. Um, it was harder to access information. People had to commute to the library more often. Um, whereas now, I mean, it's uh, it, it is pretty easy to put on multiple hats and use them as a way to kind of like fuse them together to create a, a bigger umbrella. So you're definitely not the first multi-hyphenate uh, in that, that we've had, not even today, frankly. <laughs> I love that. You know, what I think is so, is so interesting is, you know, they say, and what I read the other day is that children that are born now are likely going to live to be over a hundred. So what the hell are you going to do with all that time mm-hmm. um, other than just build multiple lives? And that's yeah. very much a, a philosophy that I, hold even true today as I think about, you know, if I treat my life as if I'm a VC investing into all of my projects and ideas, then it gives me full license to go after everything, knowing that like something's going to work. Okay. I want to ask you about that real quick. So there's a psychology with like uh, spending money versus investing money. And one of the things I've always tried to do is probably to a fault is just think if I'm going to uh, put my money down here or if I'm going to spend time here or spend money on this, it's got to feel like an investment. And even like hanging out with friends, I wanted to justify to myself that this feels like an investment. Well, you know, it's boosting my my well-being. Um, these, these are friends that can be there for me uh, in the future. Um, spoiler alert, they actually cut contact with me because um, politics is nasty. But and that actually, like I look back on that, I'm like, man, that was a, that was a poor investment. And, and, you know, I, and I still miss him as my friends too, but there's something about wanting to always recognize and respect our resources. And that if, if something is a cost versus an investment, that's something that's out of our control. So we always want things to feel like investments rather than feel like costs. Mm, That's such an interesting way of, of, of framing it. You know, I would say that like, even the notion of I invested in friends, they're not my friends. That was a bad investment. I think misses the 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 bigger scale of almost mm-hmm. like how things kind of stack up and doors open. So in my mind, as a as a serial entrepreneur, crazy person, yes. um, I would say that <laughs> I would say that that experience opens up new learning, awareness, better opportunities. And without having had the experience that you had, you wouldn't be able to make better decisions as you're going forward. So it's almost like you know rites oh. of passage through our developmental phases of what it is we truly are, are going for, knowing my aunt just turned 69 the other week. I had her over and she goes, Shama, there is no there there. And every time you think you figured it out, there's something more. And she said, develop the tools and skill sets that you can win at managing life, at coping with life, because life doesn't change and there is no mastery of life, there's only mastery of the tools 
that help you engage with life. You know what? I have to say that has actually helped me even even looking back on it now, rather than look at something as like a failed investment, which is you know not the uh, not not the not the kindest or most compassionate way to look at friends. And for the friends that I still have, uh, you know, I, I love you all, but. Regardless of the outcome, there are things that we take away from it. And so in our mind, we have to always think about what is the takeaway? What is the, um, the, the lesson learned? And how do I grow from this, you know, regardless of whether or not it was the preferred outcome or not? Absolutely. And, and it, you know, life is business. Business is life. Personal and mm-hmm. professional are the same damn thing. So mm-hmm. as we're talking about even the, the example of friends, we can think about it also in terms of jobs we've had. Um, startups that mm-hmm. we think failed or didn't go anywhere. Um, you know, investing in the stock market when you don't know what you're doing because you're learning. And so, you know, by losing money, you can actually gain insight and gain knowledge mm-hmm. and, and refine. So it's interesting how that's really, you know, personal business. It's kind of a general way of, I think, approaching all, all the damn things. Yeah. And, you know, even one of the things that we talk about with Facebook advertising too, is that that first wave of ads on Facebook, maybe some sales will get out of it, but for the most part, it is just data collection. So it's strategic losing. Absolutely. And when you go into it, so oftentimes when I'm working with every, every brand or founder CEO that I work with, we always are looking at things in terms of the experiment, the contained sandbox. And when you think of it as a sandbox and you know kind of what the experiment is supposed to lead towards, it allows you to hedge your investment, spend more in the beginning to make some mistakes, to really learn before you spend the the rest of the money that you're allocating. And I'd say even to your point on Facebook ads, I've worked with lots of young startup CEO founders who are scared of running ads, um, are, are scared to commit to an agency, run their own ads, waste even more time, money, and energy. I'm sure everyone can relate to this, mm-hmm. trying to do it themselves. <laughs> when really, if they understood the sandbox and, and the experiment, they'd go, oh shit, actually, I shouldn't be doing this. It's going to take more money and I'm going to get better results by looking at it very 360. Mm-hmm. Well, the one upside that I've observed to trying to do things ourselves, um, whether or not that's one of our core proficiencies or even like a tertiary proficiency or possibly something that we're abysmal at, is always to understand the value of the work that goes into it. So that when we delegate that task to somebody else, we know what are the metrics. Um, like if I'm handing, say, like a, a writing something or uh, actually I'll use a, I'll use a tangible example is uh, for a while I would uh, take a second run of the editing myself so that I can... Um, do more like the creative edits. And then, well, this is something I've been doing for years and years before I even joined this company. And due to time constraints, I had to hand that over to the producer. Me knowing how to do it made it a lot easier to delegate rather than trusting somebody from the beginning to take over it and just assuming that they have the frame of reference or they have the, the skill set and then I can trust them. Sometimes we have to do that, but it does help whenever we have that uh, personal experience first. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with you. All right. So I noticed in your welcome video, uh, it's it's always great when like the welcome video is uh, can generate material. But uh, yeah, you so you help scale businesses from start to finish. And I wanted to ask about the finish because in my mind, I'm always imagining, and this is me, you know, from my you know my pro commerce, um, uh, pro capitalistic sense 
Um, not that I don't recognize the flaws in it, but whatever, this isn't the time for that. But you, you know, businesses, it seems to me that growth is a constant um, because if something becomes um, stagnant, what happens is everything else grows, um, la- everything else around it, the competition continues to grow. And so that growth can actually turn into a, a decline. That's just like um, a theory that I pulled out of thin air uh, right here, right now. But I would love to hear about like, what is the destination point for, for businesses? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm largely thinking of like the ones that you've worked with due to the uh, uh, hands-on and personal experience with it. So what does an end point look like? What does a finish look like for, for different businesses? Thank you. Um, You're welcome. There's so many ways that I can approach this answer. So when it comes to, uh, let's just say the beginning, so there are ways to think about this. First, I'll break it down in terms of how I look at a, at a completion point with me and a client. And then also in terms of a completion point with someone in their bigger landscape of their, their company. So I tend to be an, oh shit, higher. Oh shit, we're going too fast. Oh shit, it's going too slow oh shit, I don't know what I'm doing, right? So it's like, oh my God, something's happening. Who am I going to call? Shama, right? So I become that kind of hire. So for me, the there's a very clear kind of handoff point where I'm there to solve a very specific problem. Um, and so my goal is to get in, capacity build, train, teach, implement the damn things, and then leave. So I'm kind of there to get in and get out. Now, when I'm assessing a client and who I want to work with, the very first question that I ask them is, well, where do you want this to go? So is your goal here to run this business for the next 20 years? Do you want this to be a family business? Is your goal here to run it for five years, make some cash, do something else? Um, you know, are you looking at launching some sort of technology platform? You know, is this something that has a possibility of an acquisition down the road? If I am going to build something for somebody, which takes a lot of my creativity, it takes so much out of me in terms of business modeling, strategy, um, understanding consumer behavior. I am literally co-CEOing someone's company. I need to know what the hell they're in it for and and where, where they want to see the finishing point. And then we work backwards. So if I know where someone wants to be, Or even if they say, I want to build this business so I can always have it forever. I don't want to manage people. I want to entirely outsource everything. I can then take a business, a variety of different business models and say, well, based on this founder type and personality, based on the capital requirements and uh, what they have available to them, and based on their vision, what is the right business model that's actually going to support those three things? Because vision without capital, doesn't go anywhere, right? You can have all about um, that. <laughs> doesn't go anywhere, and so you want to be able to suit a business model towards the end game, towards the capital, and towards the founder's vision and personality. Have you ever had to um, uh, assess someone's um, end state and convince them, or talk like make a case that maybe there was a different uh, end game in mind for them that would actually be better for them in the long run? Usually, it's telling people not to start businesses. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I tell people not to start a business. Um, I am the anti-business business consultant. I tell people, do not become part of the internet graveyard. Don't just spend a little bit of money to try and play. Like, Actually think about what it is you want to do. Um, more often than not, I would say the brands that I end up working with 
you know, are really creatively driven. So most of them are in it to be the designer, the manufacturer. They want to produce a creative vision. And what they need me for is to help put in the infrastructure and the modeling and, and kind of the, the operating side. So for them, most of the time, it's that they want to run, operate, and manage their own businesses. Now, some of them say they come to the, to the playing field and they say, well, I actually want to build this thing to scale. Like I want to sell it. I want to do something big with it. When I say scale, I mean, you know, you want a business that's doing, let's say, more than $5 million a year, right? So $5 million is very, very, very small, right? So if you want to do something more than that, you actually need to look at how your infrastructure changes. So I would say I'm usually not talking people off of uh, the final destination unless it's very clear that running a business is truly not in their cars at this moment. Um, it's more trying to help them learn and understand uh, the ways in which these things may or may not be possible and how to, how to iterate within that. Yeah. So, so let's say you, you talk, like say I come to you with a business idea. Uh, and, and you, and you, I guess, talk me down from, um, good Lord, why did I say windowsill? Anyways, why was I thinking that? Um, but what would be like the, the, the ideal thing for them to do instead, maybe like, uh, take a course, um, observe other businesses in the field, um, maybe even find a job in the field that would uh, give me some hands-on experience. Yeah. Most people need a job. So, so I would say, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah the data does support that. Yeah. Yeah. Most people need a job. So the, the idea, so there's play money that you can have a hobby with. Then there's, you know, business building money that you can actually mm -hmm. do something with. So as long as you are building up your play money and it's your hobby money, then have fun hobby, right? Understand spend. If you don't have a, a date in mind to launch your business, get a job in the space, start conducting customer interviews, really understand what the problem is. Most people who come to the table with cash and they're ready to build something, but they don't actually have any, any idea of the customer, of the problem, of what they're solving. The biggest issue is they think that having money will actually, will actually make it all happen. It's, it, it's still, these mm -hmm. things take time. There's no amount of capital that's going to buy you customer research for yourself or understanding your own, your own market or what your flywheel is going to look like. So, yeah. And I think with as much as, and there is plenty of, of data to support, um, any, any business model, you know, the money is the resource used in between the stuff that's not quantified, uh, because you're saying it takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of personal, uh, vision and creativity and drive to be like a temporary CEO. And that's all stuff that I, I've, I wouldn't know how to write down on paper. So for somebody to just approach with, um, uh, with with a bucket full of cash, but not really under recognize what other resources they have to have at the ready in order to succeed in business, it makes one wonder. Well, you know, why don't just like put that money into uh, into GameStop stocks or something? Like there are other things that people can do with the money that can just transform into other money. So it is it is fascinating to to hear like people approaching business. Uh, specifically to turn that money in, and transform that money into more money, Rumpelstiltskin style. I would say being somewhat of a biased researcher, I'm always looking for information that is um, ideal to the content that I'm trying to make here is that for the most part, people seem to approach business because they want to solve a problem. And oftentimes because they've solved one for themselves. Like one of the, way, one of the stories I researched way back was these gluten-free cookies. She needed them for her daughter. So she says, well, you know, my daughter needs them. I guess other people need them too. The, those resources were all there. Um, it was it was actually the cash that was probably the first problem. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that understanding 
what you're in it for, your own leadership style. So for example, someone who's an investor, right, who get who, who wants to put money into a business doesn't have to be the CEO founder of the business, right? It doesn't have to be like that. And so I think oftentimes what we think about is like, you know, <laughs> I have this money, I want to make an impact and not many people understand the different ways in which they can make an impact without having to have their own brand or their own business. And, um, and I think that that's pretty, I think that's pretty interesting. I mean, there are brand owners, there are investors, there are people who are, um, you know, tinkering with their hobbies and there's no right or wrong way to do it. What I can tell you is that launching a fashion business is not a get rich quick opportunity. Mm -hmm. And so when we're thinking about what those opportunities are, you're absolutely right. The stock market, Bitcoin, lots of other opportunities right now to turn a profit. So more often than not, the people who are investing into building fashion businesses are doing so because of legacy Mm -hmm. They're doing so because they have this creative vision that they want to see out in the world. They're doing it because they've, like you mentioned, potentially solved some sort of product. And in this case, it's usually emotional problem solving. It's not necessarily I've created a new kind of t-shirt that now has five armholes, right? The t-shirt's always going to look the same, but maybe they're solving a particular emotional problem. And so the thing I always like to say is, Yes, there are oversaturated markets, but there are undersaturated voices. And so in mm. fashion, it's not about saying, well, everyone else is selling X, I, there's no space for me. It's more about saying, can I craft the right emotional messaging and have the right voice to connect to an audience that may be underserved? Well, one thing that I want to do is um, help our, our listeners maybe draw some roadmaps towards this path. And one of the ongoing themes that we have in the show is that so far, everybody who's like done the, the dropshipping route, I don't know, there might be an exception, but I bet even those exceptions are on a ticking clock where... They they drop ship they build the capital and then they move on and I can I can bring this all the way back to like the second interview I did with uh, the econ king Camille Sitar who said that he wants to do uh, a fashion brand as well and so he's he's built up his capital for it so I'm on the, like the verge of asking you know, what it is about fashion in particular but I think people are going to have to make up their own mind on that um, and I think you've said some great things here about how fashion can actually be a voice for for a group of people to maybe like communicate a culture or. Or, or make a statement on its own. So that right there is the answer to the question. So and unless there's like other ones too that you want to add on to that, I'll pause briefly just in case. I mean, fashion's really fucking fun. So like, you okay. know, when it comes... <laughs> so, so I'm just going to say that. Like that, I mean, it's, it's fun. I mean, it, it has these larger uh, purposes. I mean, certainly fashion can relate back to, yes, underserved voices, community, identity, um, masking. I mean, you know, fashion and, and that whole emotional side, it runs so much deeper than I think most people will even recognize on a psych psychological level. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also really fun. And I, and I really think that's important. <laughs> okay. So I'm gonna, what I'm going to ask, I have a couple of things uh, planned that I want to ask. One of them is about, um, say, if somebody's got the capital to make their way into a brick and mortar. So we'll get to that. Uh, but here's one that I've personally always wondered about the industry, and I'm hoping you can shed some light on it, but I don't expect you to be like 
the be all end all to finally like uh, answer this for me once and for all. But fashion trends change. Some of it is based off like, well, it's cold now, so you know you're gonna have to wear uh, stuff that's warmer. Um, you know, in, in theory. And what I'm always I've always wondered about is the relationship between the trends and the industry. Is the industry dictating the trends or is it more responding to the trends? Like where exactly do fashion trends come from? So my professional answer to that is through trend forecasting companies, but, okay. <laughs> but let me, <laughs> where, where do they get their information? So what's really interesting is um, fashion and culture um, and we'll call it for lack of a better word here, you know, the street or what people are wearing. There's always been a very interesting symbiotic relationship between the two. And so um, in terms of like where culture and influence comes from and then how it gets reinvented into uh, different, let's call them uh, price buckets of brands. So obviously to be able to see, for example, a brand that has uh, found a resurgence, like some of the old school brands like Fila, for example, or some of the older athletic brands that kind of died, died out, Flojo, right? And then all of a sudden, there's oh kind God, of a- I haven't heard about Flojo in years. Yeah. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, you're like, oh my gosh, this thing is making a comeback. And then all of a sudden, you see a brand collaboration with a higher end luxury brand. So when it comes to what style is or fashion trends, um, I'll say a couple of things. One is uh, fashion and trend direction does not come from the runway or major fashion houses. That is not where, where fashion trends come from. Um, more often than not, uh, fashion trends are coming from, I would say, some of the more interesting outliers. So when you think of like fashion muses or people who are dressing creatively, um, you're oftentimes looking at people who are in the art scene, right? People who mm -hmm. are um, on the peripheral of fashion, right? And then they draw inspiration from these muses and incorporate them into their designs. Um, but, you know, there's also kind of pulling inspiration from, um, from streetwear culture and, and lots and even bringing uh, different kinds of uh, nuances from glo global culture has now found its way in both positive and negative ways into more mainstream fashion. Uh, negative in the sense of like, you know, real lack of understanding of some uh, diversity issues and, and really mm -hmm. what constitutes something that's culturally relevant versus what is, um, you know, something that is giving nod or thanks to or, or really recognizing it. So there's definitely some cultural appropriation issues. Mm -hmm. There is no one answer to your question other than um, at the end of the day, the future of where retail trends will be moving to will still always be dictated by those who are the, the most influential, not necessarily on Instagram, but those who are the most influential within their early adopter spaces, who are then able to kind of uh, create, create trends on a smaller scale. And that has always been the case. There have always been early adopters and influencers who have set trends, um, who generally speaking, don't always know that they're the ones who are setting the trends. So on that uh, note, so here's the thing that um, I was pleased to hear is that, you know, the, it's not like there there's the the god of fashion who's like dictating the rules for it. Um, it's 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 a culture. It's um, it, it is influencers in their spaces um, having the ripple effect. Um, <laughs> so with uh, with fashion shows in particular, I, I am curious about like what role they play 
um, because it is, it's kind of, it's kind of a mimetic where like, you'll, you'll see a, a gif of, um, what we'll say is are some of the more creative takes on fashion. And I try to be, I'm pretty open-minded. Um, I, I come from the arts background, uh, but I do see people, you know, walking down the runway and it, and, and it looks like they've got like a procedurally generated, I don't even know how to describe it. Like there's like holes popping out and there's colors all over. And I'm like, well, if it's warm, that's one thing, but I, I don't really know what to make of it. So what is like the end game for um, these highly creative takes on clothing? Uh-huh. It's funny. It's like what you're, what, what you just said reminds me of like an art school, like senior fashion show where it's like, where the goal is to like make the most outrageous shit you can. And you're yeah. like, well, I'm just going to like go for it. It's similar to that. So, so actually, when I was at Gucci, I was uh, responsible for the outlet division. And our division was comprised of both product that was made for the outlet as well as aged inventory from our full price stores. And what was really interesting is when we would then start to see the different collections and the shows come out, it'd be very easy for me to look at and be like, huh, I think this is going to end up in the outlet. You know, I mm-hmm. think this thing is, is going to sell throughout full price. We might need to develop, um, oh, this thing is going to be really great, you know, in, in our store. And so what's interesting is fashion shows are not really intended to tell you what to wear. They're intended to almost show you um, the somewhat unattainable North Star of kind of the the most creative within a cohesive landscape of what that creative director and designer is envisioning. Because oftentimes what's on the runway gets modified, changed, and altered to then be ready to be sold in a store, right? So usually what you see in the store is kind of a, most of the time, pretty big delta between what you saw on, on, on the runway. Well, I will say that I, I will appreciate the artistic uh, expression of it as well. Uh, just to use it as a, just to use. I mean, they're they're called models, right? So they are. There is a an opportunity there to uh, express them, and I, and I can understand too if they want to use this opportunity because otherwise, if they're they're in the same way that if a filmmaker has to do the studio uh, films to make bank, but then wants to work on something experimental that might not exactly like you know take off in in, in theaters but is something really deep and personal to them and can be influential. And then can, and the ideas from that film can then uh, take and, and start making their way into others. And then before you know it, those ideas end up becoming bigger ones. I'm just thinking of like Christopher Nolan's trajectory, for instance, you know, his movies were pretty small scale, but he was very, very smart and understanding of what the film delivery format was capable of. Uh, so that, that clears up a lot of things for me. It's just, just personally, I've always wondered about. Let's uh, let's do some favors for our uh, for our core audience for our drop chippers. So the first question is, and I'm doing my best not to frame this too much under a COVID lens. Uh, lately, we managed to not talk about it too much, but I recognize that it's relevant and it's important, especially in the question of why go brick and mortar. So we'll we'll factor it in where it is, and so where the importance of it, I defer to you. But for our for our drop shippers and ecom entrepreneurs. Um, why go brick and mortar these days? Space is so valuable. Space will always be valuable. How we look at investing in space is um, culturally, socially, it's, it's such an important place of gathering. It builds community. It builds culture. It creates real physical attachment and bond to brand and to other people. And so when you get a chance to bond with people in person, 
under the umbrella of a brand, all of these positive emotional connections that reinforce brand are now there subliminally in your mind um, in a space that's far less crowded than online digital ads. So capturing someone's time and space and, and connection is, is unquantifiable in a larger customer lifetime value uh, marketing lens. Harder to quantify, extremely impactful, definitely something that today everyone is uh, suffering from existential crisis around connection, space, and community. I think brick and mortar is going to play an increasingly more and more important role as we look to reinvigorate the economy through a true, and I hate this word, omni-channel lens. <laughs> I can, yeah, I can understand why. I'm, I'm neutral on that one, but I, I understand. <laughs> Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> this last year, um, uh, I, I haven't had a, very many chances to, to to visit retail stores. Which I worked retail for for a number of years. Um, one of the one of the companies I worked for was uh, was Fossil, and I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, and this is really more of an observation. This isn't the point that I'm. This isn't the question I want to uh, bring up per se. But um, one of the, my takeaways from it is that if I had known that how long I was going to be there. I think I would have put more effort into the connections that I made with employees as well as with um, customers too. Um, what I had done, what I ended up doing was I ended up like taking for granted uh, how long my my time w- there was actually going to be. I think there's always going to be new customers coming in. There's also going to be new employees coming in because, you know, retail is, is difficult work. You know, you get a lot of students, right? They, they graduate, they go back to, to Barry or whatever. So so that's just me, like my uh, some of the stuff that I look back on in retail. I always enjoyed the idea that a, a store um, was really going to be like a, a, a local landmark, and it was going to be something that people would want to go to, even just to socialize uh, and, be, and be a part of the community there. Some of that does have to do with like, okay, well, you know, if you put coffee there, if you put chairs in there, then people are going to be more incentivized to want to stay there. Whereas I don't see that particular incentive. And in like, if I go to like my my local mall, like a Yorkdale Mall, where it is, um, you know, high end, high end retail stuff. So, so I do see some some challenges there, but I also see the the benefits that that you've described. I also wanted to ask you about where you see like a future or any have you, if you've seen any visions for what is going to happen to uh, the retail space, especially when you consider how much business can actually just be done online. And this last year, we've had a lot of conditioning to to do business online. I'm certainly uh, no stranger to it. I can look around my room and I've got like eight things that I've ordered online. So one example of this um, that I'll give just to help kind of like uh, uh, cook it is uh, Casper mattresses. I know that brand from online. I know them from the uh, from the marketing. What I didn't expect was to see a store for them. Now we go into the store, we don't expect, and I don't think they expect that they're going to close uh, that often on a mattress because that's, that's a lot of money, but it was brilliant because the mattresses was there and we can test them. And that probably made a lot more purchases online, feel more secure. Like, okay, well, I tested this out and I'm going to go home. I'm going to buy it. Um, so on that, with that in mind, I'm wondering where you see retail, if there's any evolution for the retail sector, uh, down the line. I would say that the, the nice thing about Casper is that, or even away luggage or any of those things. Having a physical space is a calling card. It's, it's a business card. It's something that you are, that they're probably looking at in terms of, you know, their, their P and L. I would doubt that they're looking at that as a revenue stream so much as a marketing footprint to reinforce their digital, uh, their online sales. 
So I think a big part of it is looking at the role of what space can do for you without having to look at it from a sales per square foot capability. And if you have a robust digital first business, then your brick and mortar stores become the physical extension, um, possibly yielding you higher results than a billboard, right? Or possibly yielding you higher results than other kinds of external out of home facing marketing channels. And um, given the the kind of explosiveness of space being available, I would say back in like 2000 and, you know, 13, 14, 15, like a lot of people got into space and then experiential became so big. And now in the last year, it's kind of fallen by the wayside, but it's still very important, even more so now. Like I would, I would hope that many of the direct-to-consumer brands and e-com businesses that have done quite well over the last year will hopefully be able to understand that, yes, you can keep fighting with more digital advertising dollars, but looking at where your customers are mostly located and maybe investing in a small, you know, a small space for a pop-up might actually do way more for you, right? When, when economies and things start to open up or labor markets open up more than reinvesting that into, uh, into this digital funnel. And so my hope is that the the profits can get reinvested into ways that are more sustaining, because as we all know, (laughs) the cost of doing business online is so much more expensive now. It is so much more expensive. Um, And we have to be looking at other ways to be able to to capture audience and to bridge loyalty and connection. And I think physical space does that quite well. I think direct mail does that very well in addition to that. And then, of course, layer on top of that the the traditional kind of uh, digital marketing channels. Oh, sorry that that is uh, uh, that, that's quite a bit to take in. And I didn't it didn't occur to me, uh, but th- that you brought it up that the uh, experiential uh, part of it because I, I I do re- remember seeing like a lot of pop ups all of a sudden because I think um, I, I would say around like I don't know twenty four no probably like 2016, 2017. Uh, there were there were a fair share of closures, and so this idea of like stores would just uh, show up, uh, present their brand, um, and then would would get going. So then that way people had the, a lasting impression. It would make them more likely to want to then continue doing business online or even keep their eyes out for the next pop up store. Totally. All right. So have you had any? Uh, I, I imagine you do, but I tend to ask this question more open ended because I don't want to be like, "Tell us about the time that you did this thing for this person." Like I always start open ended. So. Have you had any experience laying out a roadmap for, say, like a purely digital brand uh, to then transition into a retail space? Yes. Would you like me to tell you more? Well, I think that is everything. <laughs> uh, thank you for listening. All right. Yeah, yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, any any examples yes, that stick out? Yeah. I'd love to hear it. Yeah, of course. Of course. Um, I would say this, this happened. Uh, I had a client in Bahrain who wanted to have a um, multi-line retail store and we first started with the business online. So our roadmap was actually let's use the power of uh of e-com to build out your brand and then let's expand it to a uh physical footprint. And we actually ended up launching both of them within about I would say 9 months of each other. So we started with digital in order to get the the word of mouth out and then what we did is we built into her uh, budgeting for the year, kind of what it would take for us to to really invest into this this project. And the most interesting thing about all of that was 
was really being able to hone in on the geographic region by which those people were going to be shopping. So Bahrain is very small, right? So, so we're not talking about uh, we're not talking about you know California, but um, but being able to fully kind of start to bridge those relationships and connections digitally allowed us to get more information to better tailor the customer experience in the store, um, which which is fascinating because sometimes, and at least in the last year or so, I've just seen so many brick and mortar stores that have then gone digital, right? Assuming that they understand that customer. But for her, everything was so, so localized that starting digital allowed us to get that entryway to have those close customer conversations on the phone to then help us build out what our physical space was going to look like. You know, this reminds me of a previous episode I had with um, Aaron Pearson, who uh, he does bit branding and he was all about um, advertising, helping advertising and marketing for local businesses. And one of the things that he had said um, coming up on the, the beginning of COVID is that it was sink or swim for a lot of businesses, but not in the way of like, you know, you might not necessarily have the transactions you need to succeed. It was more of like, if they wanted to keep going with it, um, if uh, they realized that they had to close out shop and then turn all their business over to the digital side, a lot of them just said, you know what? I, I think this is a, a sign for us to to close this out and, and move on. Um, so, so that, so that is a bit unfortunate. I, I, I guess I do have to wonder if, uh, if you've encountered people who are like saying, you know, we, enough is enough we we can't go the digital route. We're going to like close up shop, maybe, maybe reopen once, uh, the pandemic is over. Yeah. I think what's unfortunate is, you know, there's nothing like any sort of recession or catastrophe to really expose weak business models and, um, and holes in, in operations, and a lot of businesses closed down that were not more, let's say, uh, financially resourced or maybe previously operationally focused on creating a very profitable flywheel for their companies. And so this notion of let me close down and reopen, I think is going to, um, I think it's going to hurt in terms of, you know, what does that communication look like? So in the time of COVID, while everyone is having an existential crisis about their identities and life, you stick to brands and communities and people who are consistent and who show up for you. So I would say maybe more, more important than is my brand selling something is, is my brand communicating something? What, what is going on? What am I sharing? What, what is happening within our doors uh, or behind the scenes? I'd say there's a brand that I ended up buying this fantastic leather jacket from in the middle of COVID. And, you know, their email campaign started to have video notes from the people who worked there. And even though we all kind of understood that there was a struggle and there were things going on, there was a sense of intimacy and connection between the company and, and its customers. And that I think does, does so much more uh, being able to have the right communication strategy then whether or not you have something to sell. But if you're not communicating, then you don't exist. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially because what you were saying earlier is that one of the key things about having the physical space is to communicate, is even just the, what was the term, foot traffic. Even if they're walking by, they're, they're seeing the message, the message in the billboard, the message in the lights, whatever it is on display. So yeah, uh, that's, uh, that's a keen insight right then and there. So here's what I'm wondering about the difference between like a digital brand first versus like an in-person brand first. So I imagine, let's just say I'm, uh, maybe I haven't made my mind up yet. 
um, but I'm leaning more towards a brand that is like more focused on the digital and the online side versus a brand that might be more focused on the in-person side. Um, so what goes into deciding like what a brand needs to, in order to like funnel customers to their ideal location? If like, say they're using physical to get them onto the digital or using digital to get them to physical. Yeah, that's a big question. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so, quick, quick confession, you know, every last question that I've asked since the beginning of the show, I always wonder, did I just ask something really stupid? But so, so far, I'm like, I'm like 988 out of 989. So, you know, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> um, okay. So it's a big question. So let me see if I can reframe it back, which is if I start either digital first or brick and mortar, and then I'm looking to expand or launch into the other platform is the question, how do I bridge? How do I create that expansion or bridge in terms of like communication and, and marketing and customer? Is that kind of, is that the question? Yeah, that's, that's pretty close. Uh, the one thing I would add on to that is the difference between like, say like the want and the need, where if somebody wants to be digital, but they need a physical, um, how, what needs need to be met versus if they want physical, but they need digital what needs need to be met there. Oh, interesting. Okay, cool. Oh, I like this one. All right. So um, it's going to take me a minute. I'm going to have to think through this as we're, as we're, as we're, as we're chatting. No worries. Do you want to do like a quick pauser just to like get a, get a second? No, I, I think, I think I have it. I mean, as a business owner um, of a digital first business, the very first thing is, you know, am I digital because I can't have a space or am I being forced to being on a digital platform? Last year, Everyone was forced to being on a digital platform. Anyone who was a visual merchandiser, anyone who wanted to create storytelling in a physical space really wasn't able to do so. So going digital first, when you are truly wanting to create events, right, or a producer, which is what a lot of store owners are. These days, people open up stores by hiring event producers, right? I need to make this wall look more Instagram friendly. I need to make sure that I have an area for people to sit down. You know, we very much look at space development through the lens now of event production, which is a very different lens than launching something digitally where you're very focused on scaling up funnels, right? You're very focused on Mm -hmm. the advertising channels. You're focused on communication but it's not quite in a physical in a physical environment. So I would say this past year really highlighted the need either for a brand who is uh, physically centered to rethink entirely what brand experience meant online. And for many of those brands, it wasn't worth it. In fact, the number of people who I spoke to who had small brick and mortar stores who wanted to go digital or who had launched digital footprints did so without capturing any sales. Why? Because they weren't able mm-hmm. to translate the experience or invest the resources to, to make it something that is unique and special and that actually translate the brand. It was almost as if they were using online as a place to liquidate inventory rather than to create branded connections and relationships. So I would say it's very important to understand the true differences of how consumers are looking to emotionally attach themselves to an online experience versus a, a brick and mortar experience. And sometimes they're entirely un, untranslatable, right? And sometimes when you have a, mm-hmm. a brand like a Casper, it's entirely translatable because you're looking at a, just a short number of SKUs, right? So these small kind of DTC brands, I think, can oscillate 
uh, between these two spaces much easier than, let's say, a retail storefront that's selling 200 brands and that has to be able to recreate that experience of, of having a stylist or being able to have, let's say, a quote unquote luxury experience. Um, even companies like, you know, Saks, for example, has never really landed that in-store experience digitally. So I think that there are still some some fails here when we look at how to be able to migrate between between the both of them. In terms of hierarchy of priorities for people who are looking at, at launching businesses for the first time, this is still a very digital first era that we're in. I think that it's important to launch digital before you go into a physical brick and mortar space. Um, the reason why is I think that it becomes almost almost like how we said Casper, the storefront is a, the calling card for online, right? And it's like, hey, look at us, we have this. I mean, if you are not online to begin with, your brand almost doesn't exist, right? It's like when someone goes to to find you, you don't exist. So in terms of where to start first, I think, you know, the long-term game here is going to be in digital first brands that can, that can scale quickly. And then I think the second part of that is looking at, you know, brick and mortar distribution points kind of in pop-ups based on where the largest um, cluster of your customers are. You know, one, one brand that had come up because it comes up a lot because I'm addicted to it, which is a Coca-Cola and and I always try to think about like you know what they have to go through in particular uh, compared to a lot of other brands. And the thing is, as far as I know, they've never had like their own store because they never needed one. They had so many other outlets to to sell their product, and the the experience of that particular brand was always up to the consumer. It was encouraging the consumer to decide: Am I going to have this on a uh, on a on a cold day? I'm going to have it with dinner and a pizza with a movie. So they really put the control in the hands of the customer to decide like how they wanted to have the experience, and and then the whole Santa Claus thing came around, and I and so so I think I think there is that's one thing that I would take away on the digital side is to help guide the consumer because they're in their own home or you know on a bench or somewhere, but they are more in control of the experience themselves um, on the digitally versus when they go into a store they're a guest and they're being hosted. So that's where the, the that's where the brand has the opportunity to really to help the, the consumer understand the vision of the of the product in the first place. Mm, you know, I I I I totally agree with that. I, I think that there's a we can't think about entirely replicating one experience to another. We have to look at how these different experiences can add to the customer experience. So there is no substitution; it's it's addition. And, and I think that when we get so crazy about chat bots and this and that, you know, that luxury customer who's walking into Gucci don't want, doesn't want to talk to the chat bot, even though that's the latest technology to interact with the customer. That's not exciting to them, right? They actually, they want to get on the phone, right? They, they, they want something that's, that's more personal. And so sometimes we need to look at going, uh, going backwards to go forwards. You know, it's, it's not about just like we're seeing with the, um, huge amplification of uh, text message marketing. I mean, it's, you know, 10 years ago, sales associates were texting their customers and that was amazing. And then retail stores said, stop texting your customers. We want to standardize everything. 
And customers were like, this feels so much less personal. So now, right, it's almost like we're going, uh, we're going old school in order to, to bridge those relationships. And I think that that is a very exciting frontier in just retail in general is how do we bridge, uh, how do we bridge that customer relationship as their needs change, as we've seen in the last year? Um, as industry changes, um, as their shopping and behavior patterns change, how do we as brands work symbiotically with them and not uh, trying to force them to adopt things <laughs> that that they don't like? And also, if they're going to, I mean, if they have to use a chatbot, the least they can do is call it constant yeah. urge bot. I mean, <laughs> you know, just just saying, just saying, just putting that out there. Uh, that one's a freebie. So. Uh, I know we don't have uh, we don't have much time left for you. So, anyways, um, I got I got one more thing. This is more like a personal curiosity. So, I just wanted to decompress real quick. So, I know that you're part of the. Uh, forgive me if, if if it's changed since the time that I read it, or the time it was posted. But uh, part of the um, the Women's Business Board in downtown Los Angeles. Did I get the title right? Mm, I'm part. Um, I'm on the board of directors for the Downtown Women's Center. Uh, in in Los Angeles, yeah. Okay, my apologies for uh, not quite getting it right, but so I, I hadn't. I've I've been to downtown Los Angeles just once, and it was ten years ago. And being in in downtown Toronto, um, I have to say I was like taken aback from from downtown Los Angeles. I mean, just the highways alone, like the the it looked like a Hot Wheels track, where just the way they were all like uh, arrayed. And I have to say, I was there with my dad, so. You know, uh, my dad can beat up other people's dads, but like I was like definitely intimidated by it. And I just wanted to ask about maybe what are some parts of downtown Los Angeles that maybe people should uh, go visit or, or check out that so they can have a more like positive takeaway from uh, from that place. Because me, I love downtowns, I love city centers, and uh, and I did I, and I appreciated the opportunity to be able to check it out. But I feel like I maybe was on like not the best part of town. A lot of jewelry shops. A lot of people trying to sell me a necklace. I don't know. Yeah, you know the the really interesting thing about downtown LA is it's huge kind of Art Deco historic uh, architecture. There are a number of very beautiful old school theaters that sometimes are reopened for performances. Um, there are also walking tours of downtown LA that show you some of these really incredible historic places. So I would say what's special about downtown LA is not what you see. It's, it's really, it's being able to kind of lift behind the curtain and, and mm. see something that is spectacular and, and, and special and not so obvious. You know, the, the downtown women's center is one of the largest women's nonprofits in all of Los Angeles County that caters to homeless women and women who are in transition and need health job training and food services, et cetera. And, um, homelessness and, um, you know, uh, rise of condominiums and, and this really interesting social economic space that's very much rubbing up against each other is, is really what's happening in downtown Los Angeles. Um, it's very much like San Francisco where, you know, you might be in a really incredible high rise and, but the apartments $5,000 a month and you go outside and, you know, you have, um, homeless people who, who need help right in front of you. And so downtown LA to me feels a little bit more like uh, parts of San Francisco, uh, though certainly it can be quite dangerous. You know, there's, um, 
another part of downtown LA that is very special called the Arts District, and it's very it's it's adjacent. It's next to um, Japantown, and it's it's really like little little Tokyo. And um, the Arts District very much reminds me of like Williamsburg. It has a lot of the um, the larger industrial buildings. There's a lot of art galleries. So there there are these pockets. You know, as you know, LA is so sprawling. Uh, so downtown LA, little Tokyo and the arts district, I think are really interesting, uh, sequencing of, of neighborhoods. Um, but I would say if you're in downtown LA, learn a little bit more about some of these incredible buildings and then head over to the arts district, which is five, 10 minute walk, um, to get some more of like a, you know, New York Williamsburg experience. Okay. Well, well, I thank you for that. I I will keep it in mind because I imagine at some point I will be back there. Could, could be a while. Um, but I, I, I did. I do want to give it another shot. Um, so with that, uh, Shama, this has been fantastic. I, I had a lot of fun today. Uh, I, I really appreciate your time. And the final question before we get you on Addy here is always uh, two things. One, if you have any parting words of wisdom you'd like to share, give us a chance to do it just in case there's an answer to a question I forgot to ask, stuff like that. And then let people know how they can get in touch and uh, get involved with, the, with you and with your content. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. You know, I, I would say that, the most exciting thing for me in terms of parting words is being in this industry and being in retail is a gift and a curse. It's a gift because it will always be there because it's always growing and it's always changing and it will always keep you young. It is absolutely a curse because it is always growing. It is always changing and you're always going to feel like you don't know enough. So you're always an expert and an imposter at the same time consistently and that to me is a really incredible space to live in intellectually um, and creatively. So I love it and I hate it all at the same time. As far as how people can can get in touch with me, um, you know, at Scaling Retail, you know, which is where I do my consulting work for that, um, it's scalingretail.com. It's got all the different wonderful ways of seeing videos and content. Um, I had someone the other day tell me they've watched the last six years of my video content and I went, holy shit, you've seen all my hair changes, you've seen my outfit changes, mm-hmm. all the things. Um, but scalingretail.com is where to find me and all of the variations of scaling retail all over the internet when you just open up in Google. Okay, terrific. All right, well, listeners, uh, you all know what to do. And if this is your first time, well, I still think you know what to do because I trust you. So thank you all for for being a part of this. Uh, Shama, once more, thank you for your time. Uh, Listeners, take care and we will check in soon. Thanks for listening. You might have found this show on many number of platforms. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or right here on Debutify. Whatever the case, if you enjoyed this content and want to help us thrive, please take a few moments to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you think is best. We also want to hear from you. So whether you think you'd be a good guest or want to weigh in on anything related to our show, you can email podcast at debutify.com or connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Finally, this podcast is created by the passionate team at Debutify. If you're ready to take the plunge into e-commerce or are looking to up your game, head over to Debutify.com and see how it can change your life and the lives of many through what you do next.